I argued in the last lecture, or what I tried to argue in the last lecture, is that books two and three of the Republic are really concerned with questions about, first of all, education, um, and second of all, power. Um, and I think the challenge that Socrates is dealing with in those two books um, is the, the challenge of trying, of turning the powerful into guard dogs rather than wolves. And I think this is a good, um, uh, I think this is a generalizes to Plato's concern um, in Plato's political concern more generally. This goes back to things I said a while ago, um, back when we read book one or when we read the Gorgias, that Plato has a reputation as a critic of democracy. And he absolutely is critical of Athenian democracy. Um, and we will see those criticisms being made explicitly um, in book eight of the Republic. But before he's a critic of democracy, he's a critic of the Athenian elites, the rich um, and powerful who try to use democracy to their own ends. And I think that's really what his concern here is, right? He, the, his interlocutors are wealthy, powerful young Athenians, like Plato's brothers um, and Plato himself, right? They came from aristocratic families. Um, and Plato's concern above all is in sort of changing the orientation of that elite um, to make them into guardians rather than into a sort of rapacious wolves um, of, the, of the demos. So that's his first concern. That doesn't mean he doesn't have concerns about um, democracy. It doesn't mean he doesn't have criticisms of democracy. Like I said, we will get to those. But I think fundamentally what we're concerned with here is a, a sort of auto critique of the Athenian elite. Socrates' proposal uh, in book three for, at the end of book three, for preventing guard dogs from turning into wolves um, is a combination of factors, right? Which we saw, um, there's this civic myth, the noble lie, right? About um, sort of being born of the earth um, and of being, um, you know, sort of designed for your place in society. Um, and about the need to be tested to see if you're worthy of the place that you have. Second, there's this question of the right education, which I said we're going to be concerned with for a long time. And then third, there's this combination of institutional factors that are supposed to constrain the ruling class in the city that they're designing in speech. So that's no private homes, uh, no private property beyond what's absolutely needed. Um, they live and eat in common, um, and they have no contact with money. I suggested last time that this education in books two and three is geared especially towards Glaucon and Adimantus themselves, instead of just being a, a sort of a general prescription. Um, that is, it's all part of this um, en mutho mutho loguntes, right? This, this telling stories within a story. It's about this um, sort of meta level uh, place where Socrates is addressing his own uh, interlocutors. And, um, and I tried to indicate that I think that this is 
this works to some extent in books two and three, because we see in books two and three, we see Adamantus being brought to the place where he can overthrow the authority of the poets um, that had so concerned him before. And we see Glaucon brought to the place where he purges all of the luxuries and relishes that he himself introduced into the city. But there's a problem that is revealed by this. Um, and this is right, I think this is what motivates book four. Um, does this mean that Socrates has actually conceded Glaucon and Adimantus' arguments at the book, beginning of book two? So if you think about sort of the overarching course of books two and three, it seems as if the lesson is that in order to want to be just, you need to be told that God is good, that death is not terrible for the just, that heroes are courageous, and you need to see models of good people in the stories that you're brought up in. That is, in order to think that just being just is good, in order to think that you should want to be just, you have to be indoctrinated. <laughs> um, by a sort of heavy propaganda education. And in order to be trusted with power, you need to give up all your privacy, all your wealth, and be watched at all times by people who can call you to account. Okay. That's, that's the, the institutions that are put in place at the end of book three, right? Um, in other words, um, the city in speech, the city that they're building, is certainly not a city in which everyone knows that justice is happiness, and everyone knows that everyone else knows that and so can trust them, right? In some sense, the city in speech that they built is a city, like, for someone um, for whom the Ring of Gyges would be a terrible temptation, right? It's supposed, they basically, built everything about the education and institutions of the city and speech up to this point in order to um, like acknowledge and take account of the fact that everyone would give in to the power of the Ring of Gyges if they had it. So that's kind of paradoxical, right? It seems as if by the end of book three, Socrates has granted Glaucon and Adamantus' argument at the beginning of book two. So, but if that, if, if Socrates has not achieved um, what he set out to achieve, right? He hasn't shown that being just is good in and of itself and you should want to do it. What he has achieved is something else. What he's achieved is that Glaucon and Adamantus have forgotten about the Ring of Gyges. Um, they're no longer looking for Socrates to prove to them that justice all alone in the soul makes a person happy, even if that person is deprived of their entire reputation for justice. Indeed, right, book four begins with Adamantus um, presuming that being just does not mean being happy, right? And it, with him accepting Socrates' argument that it actually doesn't matter whether just rulers are also happy rulers. And that's quite a change. Um, 
And I want to say a word right now about happiness, um, because this is going to be a very important uh, um, concept for us going forward. Um, happiness is a clunky translation. I mean, it's not, it, it's actually kind of good. I'll get back to why, but it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a jarring translation at, at first glance of this Greek word eudaimonia. So uh, eudaimonia literally means like having good fortune. It means like having an angel on your shoulder, uh, having a good demon, eudaimon. Um, that is, you have a little supernatural power looking out for you and making sure that things go well for you. Um, it's being blessed, basically. Um, which actually, if you think etymologically, it actually does work with happiness also, because the root of happiness um, is this word hap, which we otherwise only use in happenstance or it happens. And it, hap means luck. Um, so to be happy is to be lucky. They're, etymologically, they're identical. Um, and, and that's what the Greeks thought too, right? To be happy, that's just, that's to be lucky. That's to be, um, that's to be blessed by powers that are not under your control. Um, and so the, the, the challenge here is to, is to bring together two things, right? Being just, that seems like something that's up to you, right? That's your choices that decide whether or not you're just. So being just, which is something you have power over, is that something that's going to reliably lead to being happy, which is something you don't have control over, that involves like being, having good things happen to you, right? Will um, your choices make it the case that good things happen to you? Um, that's, that's the challenge, as it were. Um, and, or that's what seemed to be the challenge. But now when we get to the beginning of book four, it seems as if Adamantus, at least, has given up on trying to get that certainty. Um, he's willing to acknowledge that being just um, might be worth doing, even if it doesn't make you happy. Right, even if it doesn't make everything go your way. Okay. I want to connect that to then what happens in book four, because then it's very, this is an interesting thing. This, this sort of admission by Adimantus early in book four paves the way for them to actually find justice in book four, right? At least that's what, that's what Socrates says they do, right? Um, they find justice both in the city and in the soul, and they propose a definition for it, something they weren't able to do before. It's almost as if they had to give up thinking that justice alone and only can make a person blessedly happy in order to find out what justice actually is, right? They had to give up this wish for justice to fit into happiness in a tight way in order to figure out what justice is. And maybe that's actually the point, right? As long as you think of, in terms of what do I get out of being just, you're not even able to ask what justice is, much less find a definition of it. Right?
that's just a proposal. Um, we can see if that uh, interpretive proposal um, carries any water a little bit later on in the book. So if that's, if, if they've, they're able to find out what justice is, what is it? What is, what is justice? What's the definition of justice that they find um, now in book four? Well, at the beginning of book four, um, Socrates responds to Adamantus' objection about the rulers not being happy um, by saying that the city as a whole is happy and that's enough. Um, and he says then that, that the guardians, the, the, the rulers of the city are craftsmen of the public happiness, the happiness of the city. Um, it, this is a, an interesting word that I want to pause on for just a second. Um, what he says is that they're uh, demiurgoi. Uh, demiurgoi was a, it was a commonplace Greek word for craftsmen, um, but it, etymologically it means um, demiurgoi. It's a compound word. It means someone who works for the demos. That is, um, it, you know, like the blacksmith doesn't just make uh, you know, horseshoes and hammers for themselves, they make horseshoes and hammers for everybody, right? Um, and that's, that's sort of the idea. Like if you're a craftsman, you work for the public. Um, and so you have this notion that um, embedded here that the guardians, the rulers of the city should be thought of this way. They are public servants, right? Um, in a literal sense. Their job is not to make themselves happy. Their job is to produce the happiness of the city. But there is a disanalogy as well. Unlike other craftspeople, the guardians are not concerned only with making something that's outside of themselves. Part of what the guardians make is themselves, right? They make and guard themselves. Um, that's what it is to have political power, um, is that you um, shape the ruling class and you shape yourself. And that therefore, Socrates says, they have to guard against wealth and poverty, including their own wealth and poverty. Um, they have to guard against innovations in the education regime. They have to guard against innovations in how children are reared in the city. And they have to guard against the city growing or shrinking too much, right? They have to keep the city in a, in a pretty steady state. And after Adimantus uh, agrees to all of this, then Socrates declares um, at 427D that his city is founded. It's interesting that he says his, your city is founded, Adimantus. This is Adimantus' city. Um, he doesn't say ours. He doesn't take ownership of the city himself, which will be important later on. And now that the city is founded, then the, the interlocutors, they go about looking for justice in the city. And, you know, Socrates has an interesting method of doing this. He, he says that, um, He's going to do this by, you know, process of elimination, right? So the city is, 
and I should say, these are the, the virtues that they go about looking for, the, looking for in the city right here, right? Wisdom, courage, moderation, and justice. These are just proverbial um, cardinal virtues um, in Greece. They're not, they're not pulling these out of a hat. Um, um, and there's nothing maybe necessary about that. They, these are just the virtues that any Greek would have pointed to. You say, well, what, are the, what, are, what must a person be in order to be virtuous? Well, they have to be wise, they have to be courageous, they have to be um, just, and they have to be moderate or um, um, continent. We'll come back to the translation of some of these terms. So Socrates um, goes about trying to find justice in the city by a process of elimination, <laughs> um, which is a weird process. It's not clear that it makes any sense whatsoever, but um, he says, well, first it's easy to find wisdom, right? Wisdom is uh, the, the virtue of the guardians. The, the, the city is wise because the guardians are knowledgeable and they're skilled and they give good counsel to the city. So that's why the city is wise. So we find the wisdom of the city in a class in the city, the ruling class. And the city is courageous, well, because the auxiliaries, the, the soldiers are courageous, right? And, and what that means is that they have this particular version of courage. They, uh, he has this funny definition of courage. He says that courage is the power to preserve an opinion about what is terrible, right? That is, the soldiers of the city are able to, like, they're able to hold on to what the city has told them is the most terrible thing. They're able to preserve their education in the face of the horrors of battle, right? Um, they hold on to the notion that um, it's not terrible to die even when uh, they're on the brink of death, right? So the city is courageous because the soldiers are courageous in this way, right? The city is moderate in turn, um, or it has sophrosune, um, because everyone in the city is of one opinion about um, who should rule. Right? Um, I'll say a little bit about this, this, well, I'll come back to the, all of the names of the virtues, but sophrosune is interesting. Um, and then finally, this leads us to uh, justice, right? Well, why, why, is it, why is the city just? Where is justice in the city? Well, it turns out that the city is just, Socrates claims, because everyone has and does their own and what belongs to them. That is, each and every one minds their own business. That is, everybody does their job. Everybody does their part. Everybody chips in and does the thing that they are supposed to do um, in order to keep the city in good shape. So I wanna give you uh, another, a little bit more vocabulary, a little more Greek vocabulary. So the, the virtues here. Um, Sophia is straightforward. That um, is, is the word for wisdom. Um, and it's a very old Greek word for wisdom. Um, the word for courage is, has a more, more interest to us. Uh, the word for courage is Andrea, um, which means manliness. Um, on air is the Greek word for man uh, in a gendered sense, um, not for human being, that's anthropos, 
but uh, for a man is an aner, and a man is a man because he has Andrea, manliness. Um, so courage is a very gendered virtue, right? Uh, it is the gendered virtue. It is manliness itself. That's going to be very important for us when we get into book five. So I just want you to bookmark that idea um, and pay attention to what they say about courage um, in book five. Um, the third virtue, moderation, is this word sophrosune. So sophrosune has, um, um, has the same root as Socrates, actually. Um, that soph at the beginning means um, to save or to be sound. Um, and uh, frosune is, uh, uh, phronos is the mind. So sophrosune is being of sound mind. Um, and that means sort of being balanced, um, you know, not being carried away. And that's what moderation means. Um, and so uh, that's why Socrates says, uh, defines moderation in the dialogue in the way he does as a sort of self-mastery, of being in control of yourself, uh, of not being pulled this way and that way by your desires. Um, and that's why it become, he understands it as a sort of harmony or unanimity um, in the city, right? an accord, an agreement um, of the various parts of the city. And then that brings us to, dikai, uh, to justice. Dikaiosune is the word for, for uh, justice. Um, and it derives from um, dikaios, um, which is an adjective that originally just meant, you know, observant of custom, someone who is civilized or dutiful, right? Someone who follows the rules, basically. Um, so, and, and by extension from that, sort of someone who is um, fair um, and, and well-balanced, um, um, something like that. So um, this brings us to this definition of justice. Um, we're gonna be spending a lot of time on this definition of justice um, and we'll, especially on Monday, or I mean on Tuesday when we talk about book five, uh, there's something really important that happens to justice in book five and, and we'll talk more about it then. Um, but obviously, this, he proposes this definition that, that the city is just because everyone minds their own business. And this has important repercussions for then um, the discussion of justice in an individual. Because what Socrates does at this point is say, well, now right, we went looking for justice in the city because we thought it easier to find there. And now it's time to reverse the operation and to go back from the city to the soul and find justice in the soul. But when we do so, something interesting happens, right? It turns out the soul is just like a city, right? Um, you know, initially the, the whole quest to find justice all by itself, all alone in, in the soul, seemed strange because justice seemed like a social virtue. It seemed to be about the relationship among people. And that's why it made sense to find it in the city, but not maybe not in the soul. But now it turns out that the soul is like the city. The soul is a multitude, right? The soul is composed of a multitude of different desires. Each is pulling in its own direction. 
And the soul is also composed of other things. The soul also is composed of thumos, right? This heart or, you know, the spiritedness, um, which um, I think in the way Socrates talks about it is what, um, you know, identifies the self with some of those desires um, and against others, right? So Socrates tells the story of the man who, um, you know, wants to look at the dead bodies, the execute, the bodies of the executed, but hates himself for wanting it, right? And so berates himself for it. Um, and so identifies himself with a resistance to those desires. Um, and that's, that's sort of what Thumos does. Thumos is what ident where I identify myself. Um, and then finally, uh, so there's a multitude of desires. There's Thumos, which is sort of this principle of identity, of identification. And there's Logismos, or calculation. That is, ratiocination, like thinking things through. Um, and Logismos tries to coordinate amongst these desires and, and with thumos and tries to chart a path uh, towards, you know, that allows you to satisfy as many desires as possible without uh, destroying yourself and your sense of who you are. So in a just person, then, according to Socrates, each of these parts minds its own business, right? Does its own thing, does what it's supposed to do. And the effect of this is that Socrates has introjected social relations into the individual. Each of us contains multitudes. Um, and the justice of our soul is about the right relationships obtaining amongst the multitude of things that are going on in us. It also has this benefit for him which is, it's obvious <laughs> that if justice is, um, you know, the right relationship amongst the parts of the soul, and hence a sort of health of the soul, then it's obvious that justice is good for the person um, who is just. Even if it's hard work to maintain or to establish justice in one's soul, it's obvious that being just is good for you in the same way that justice in the city is good for the city because justice is this um, um, like healthy relationship amongst the parts of myself where each part of myself is doing what it is best equipped to do um, and they don't meddle in one another's affairs affairs like the, the contrast is a sort of civil war. So the, the, what Socrates has done here by introjecting social relations into the soul, he's made it obvious that um, justice is um, good for the just because it's a state of internal peace. And injustice is bad for me. Being unjust is bad for me because it's a form of being at war with myself right, or being chaotic on the inside. Um, and this is going to be something that we're going to see again and again. Um, so 
that brings us to the end of book four. Um, and book five is going to start with another interruption by Adamantus, um, because Adamantus is going to say, wait a second, you need to tell us more about what's going on um, with something. Um, and that's going to set off a whole new chain of arguments. But I wanted to, I wanted to stress to you the way in which um, in the course of book four, like at the beginning of book four, Socrates seems to have admitted tacitly <laughs> that um, justice and happiness would don't necessarily go together at all. Um, and that in fact, in order to be um, just, you know, or in order to want to be just, um, you would have to be indoctrinated from a young age about particular beliefs. Um, and you would need to be um, watched like a hawk, um, not, not be able to use your power however you wanted. But a huge transformation has happened by the end of book four. Just, so just over the course of book four, we've gone from that picture, which seemed to concede everything to Glaucon and Adamantus. Um, and we've found justice and defined it in such a way that in fact, um, everybody should want to be just, <laughs> um, because justice is obviously a condition of health um, for yourself. Um, and everyone should um, want that for themselves and be a guardian of themselves in order to make sure that they um, attain and retain um, that condition. 